Maybe it would be that way at the end too, right? But uh, if you would be taking your Bibles and turning with me to Mark chapter 15. Mark 15 is going to be our text this morning. You'll notice from the, the video just a minute ago, did you, did you guys know that next week is Easter? That's kind of crazy, isn't it? I, I have proof. See how red my head is? Uh, Ms. Carolyn Heaton was generous enough to open up her home to us yesterday. We went out as a church and had an egg hunt out there, and I got pretty red, and I was reminded, oh yeah, next Sunday is Easter. And, and guys, you know as well as I do that of every Sunday of the year, there are people in your life, people in your family, friends that you work with, that they may not come to church any Sunday of the year, but they may actually come if you invite them on Easter. And so I want to encourage you this morning to be thinking about someone that you can invite for next week as we continue what we're going to begin talking about this morning, which is the question that God needs to answer for us. The question that God needs to answer for us, which is how much does he love us? And so we're going to be talking about uh, someone to believe in, someone to believe in. And this morning I wanted to begin uh, just by talking about this question because you guys know as well as I do that we all have questions that we feel like God needs to answer. I was, was reminded of this the other night. I was putting my son to bed, and I was praying with him. And I, after we had prayed with him, you know, I was just kind of laying there next to him. And he said, uh, Dad, i, I got to tell you something. He said, I, I told God, I told him that he has to prove, prove that he's real, God, Dad. I, I told him that I, when I wake up tomorrow, I want to see lightning circling our house. And that's going to prove that he's real. And, it, and we had a little dis talk, and it, and it was funny because I got up and I left, and my and Crystal went in there as well, and, and he told her the same thing, and, and I heard her say, "Well, well, son, isn't lightning kind of dangerous? Like, leave it to my kid. You know, everybody else is like, God, I, I want you to do a sign, you know, wiggle a, a tree branch or something, and my son's like, God, I want to see your wrath, you know, like, gee, thanks, kid, right? But but it, but we all, if we're honest this morning come to a place in our life where we begin to question God and ask God questions. And, and, and so while Josiah asked the question that many of us would ask uh, vocally, many times we ask that question without ever asking it because we don't have the courage to ask it. And I just wonder how many people in your life do you know that have questions for God? Well, if you have folks in your life who, who are wondering about God, questioning God, would you, would you bring them with you next week? As we talk about who God is, is God real? What has God done? How much does he love us? Because as we talk about this, we're going to see, guys, that we do. We have someone we can believe in. We have someone who can give us hope, someone who can give us courage and freedom and salvation and eternal life and changes forever. And, and we see it this morning. We see it first off in the event that's really the center of all of human history, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. No more important event in all of history than this. And so we see it in Mark 15, beginning in about verse 16. We see this first question we need to ask, which may not be the well, may be on the top of your mind. Why do we need Jesus anyway? Well, as we walk through these verses, what we're going to see, just to be brutally honest with you, is the reason why we need Jesus is because you're not near as good as you think you are. Let's look at this in the and the people that we see at the foot of the cross of Jesus. In verse 16, Mark records for us, and he says, And the soldiers led him, being Jesus, away into the palace, away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. 
And they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with the reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. Will you join me in prayer this morning? Father, I pray that you would speak to us through your word. I pray that Jesus would be exalted in this place. Lord, I do thank you that you give us a chance to come aside this morning and look at your word together to hear from you. And God, I pray that we would have ears that would hear you this morning, that we would have hearts that would respond to you. God, I pray that I wouldn't get in the way of your message and that I would be able to be your messenger. God, would you use us to change the world? Would you use us to spread the news, the good news of Jesus Christ as we leave here today? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so this first group we see are, are, are the men who are gathered at the foot of the cross who are tasked with crucifying the Savior, crucifying Jesus. They do this with great joy, really. They do this. They put all their heart into it. These men... Uh, <clears throat> do all they can to embarrass Jesus, to humiliate Jesus, to torture Jesus. They, they put this purple robe on him to signify royalty, but it's mock royalty because they don't really believe that he is the king. They don't really believe that he is the savior. They don't really believe that he is God. And so they put this pretend robe on him. And not only do they do that, they twist together this crown of thorns and they place it on his head and they beat it into his head. And they mock him and they pretend to worship him. They get down on their knees and, and they laugh as they pretend to worship this, what they feel like is an imposter of a king. They begin to make fun of him because they are convinced. Because they are absolutely convinced that he is not king. They're absolutely convinced that he is not God. They're absolutely convinced that he has no authority and no uh, ability to tell them what to do. And so in this moment, they are taking every effort they can to prove that they have no respect for this man who calls himself uh, the Savior of the world. And so they, they put the crossbeam on his back and they make him carry it up the hill to Golgotha. Jesus, too weakened to carry the cross, uh, has somebody else help him carry it up the hill. And part of the, the crucifixion, experience, crucifixion experience would be that you would walk up the hill to the cross. And as you walk up the hill to the cross and everybody sees you, you beaten and bloodied and wearing next to nothing, they would look at you and they would laugh at you and they'd make fun of you and say, ha, you thought you could stand against the Roman Empire. You have no power at all. This was a show of the Romans' power. This was a show that the Romans were more powerful than anyone. And so these men, these Romans, were convinced that Jesus has no power over them. And so as Jesus is walking up the hill, they are all convinced that he has no authority. And they, they were convinced that God cannot do anything in their life. And so we read in verse 24 of Mark chapter 15, And they crucified him, and they divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. They have spent every effort that they can think of to prove that Jesus has no authority in their life. Guys, you may have people like that in your life who no longer even questioning whether or not God is real, questioning whether or not God has any authority. They've come to the conclusion God is not in charge, that God is not real, and that they can do whatever they want, and that God will not punish them. Maybe, maybe you have folks like that in your life. Maybe you have come to that place in your life where you have just basically determined that there is no God. Or maybe you look at this and you say, no, that would never be me. I would never act this way. Of course I know there's a God. Let's look at, look at verse 27. And with him, 
they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. (coughs) So we have the executioners who have decided that Jesus is not God. And now we have the common man, the, the common folk walking by, and they laugh at Jesus. They shake their heads. And they say, didn't you say you could rebuild the temple in three days? You can't even get down off that tree? Yeah, I don't buy it. Prove yourself to us. These are people who not very long before this had welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem as their Messiah, as their Savior. But since he did not do what they wanted him to do, all of a sudden he's not God. And he's not worthy of their respect. He's not worthy of their humility. And and so they, they walk by and they look and they do not see a Messiah. They see a defeated man with Messiah complex. And they say, you are not God, you are not Christ, you are not Savior, you are not King. You have no authority over us. If you do have authority over us, prove it. In other words, God, you do as I tell you. In other words, God, you do what I tell you to, and then I'll believe that you are God. You do what I tell you to, and then you can be my King. You see, ultimately, when we begin to demand that God prove Himself to us, what are we actually saying? I run the show around here. I'm the boss. You're not the boss of me. I'm the boss of you, and you have to prove it if you want to be my king. What king ever in history responded that way? Kings don't respond that way. Kings are the boss, and they get to decide what they prove and what they don't prove. But these people, as they walk by, they say, God, if you are God, you have to jump through my hoops and prove it. Sometimes he does. Most of the time he does not. Thankfully, he does not send lightning to little boys' houses just because they asked for it, right? But if we're not careful, guys, we fall into the same routine. We fall into the same category. We, at one moment, are praising the Lord and praising God and thanking God for all that he is. And the very next moment, we're questioning him because he's doing stuff we don't like are not doing stuff we want Him to do, not doing stuff that we expect Him to do. Lord, if You're really God, if You're really Savior, then You wouldn't let this happen in my life. You wouldn't let this happen. You wouldn't let this happen. If You're really God, You would prove it and do exactly what I tell You to do. That's if we're not careful. Even though we would never say that out loud, we act that way, don't we? God, if You want to be my king, you got to do what I tell You. If you tell him what to do, who's king? If you tell him how to behave, who's king? And then we see in verse 31. So also, the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that you may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And so we have the, the, the executioners, the men who had done things that are unspeakable and enjoyed it. We have the, the common folk who had seen what Jesus did and rejected him. And now we have the religious leaders. We have the folks who did everything they were supposed to do when they were supposed to do it. We have the folks who followed all the rules, the folks who were at church every Sunday, maybe even taught Sunday school. 
Technically, it was Saturday in those days, but you get the idea. They showed up and they did what God told them to do. They knew everything there was to know about the Bible, but then when the Savior comes, they look and they say, not my king, not my Savior. He doesn't behave the way I expect the Savior to behave. He is not fitting into my mold, into my standard. He does not do what I want Him to do. He can't be my king. You see, just because you're religious, just because you're good, doesn't mean that you follow Jesus. The most religious people in the history of the world killed the Savior because they didn't like the way that He acted. Because they got this one question wrong. Why do I need Jesus? You see, they ultimately didn't think they needed Jesus. They ultimately didn't think that Jesus had anything for them. They didn't think that they needed a Savior. And so when Jesus shows up and He begins to say things like, I came for the the sick, not the well. I came to call the unrighteous, not the righteous. They're like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. We're good. We don't need someone to pay for our sins. We are righteous in of ourselves. Don't be talking about us not being righteous. Don't be coming in here telling us that we're not good enough. Don't tell us we need forgiveness. You keep talking like that, you're going to get yourself killed. And ultimately they did. They, they killed Jesus because they believed themselves not to need Him. And maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you know there is a God. Maybe you know you're not the boss. But maybe you think that you're good enough without Christ. You do need Jesus this morning, guys. We even have, we even have the, we, not only do we have the folks who are basically the atheists who have decided that God is not in control, and not only do we have the agnostics that maybe God is real as long as He does what I want, and not only do we have the self-righteous people who think they don't need God, we even have the people who don't care. We have the thieves, the, the, the thieves that are dying with Him. They, they're not really religious, right? I mean, they're hanging on crosses next to Jesus because of something they did that deserved the death penalty. As they hang there, even they are making fun of Him. And here's the point. Every subculture of humanity is here saying, not my king, not my savior, not my God. You have not answered our question sufficiently for us to decide that you are our king. So, if you were God and you sent your only son to die for the people that you made who had rebelled against you and sinned so greatly that you must either uh, destroy them or pay for their sins and you choose to send your own son to pay for their sins and you send him and he's hanging there dying, paying for these people's sins and they are every one of them saying, not my God, not my king. How would you respond to that if you were God? Fireball, right? But how does God respond? This brings us to the ultimate question, guys. The question that we must answer this morning. How much does God love you? I mean, if there is a God, and we know there is a God, we know absolutely there's a God, we cannot look at creation and not see His wonder, see His glory. Even the the stars in the heavens declare His glory. Since there is a God, how much does He love us? Well, He loves us so much that He sent His only Son for us. In Mark 15, 33... And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. What's this darkness about? What does this darkness represent? All throughout the Bible, throughout the Old Testament, whenever we saw darkness, this was a picture of God's judgment. 
of God's punishment against sin, of His final declaration that a group of people have went too far and they are going to be punished for their sinfulness, that they are going to be destroyed, that His judgment is going to be carried out. And so when we see this judgment, when we see this darkness, we understand that here God is punishing and judging His Son for our sin. He's putting the punishment that we deserve on His Son in our place. At this moment, Jesus is paying for our sins, our crimes, our foolish questions, our lies, our stealing, our lust, our anger, our desires, our mistakes. Jesus is paying for all the things that we have done. You see, we, we can never repay God for the crimes that we have committed. The only way that we can be made right with God is someone else has to pay the price. All of us have broken records. All of us have missed the mark. We need someone else to pay for our sin. And so that's why we read in 2 Corinthians five twenty one that for our sake He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that, that in Him we might be made the righteousness of God. You see, sometimes when we talk about God's punishment and God's justice, we think in the same terms as, you know, if our kids mess up and we spank them, like we're trying to get them back on the right path. Well, that's correction. That's not punishment or justice. Here, God is punishing and judging His Son. He's not correcting Him. In fact, in Galatians 3, Paul tells us that Jesus becomes a curse, that He redeems us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse Himself. So for these three hours that Jesus is there and there's darkness, God is punishing His Son, the perfect Holy One, who never known what it was like to feel the, the dirtiness of disobedience. He's taking on Himself all of our dirty sins. Those dirty little secret sins that you think nobody knows about. Those big sins that you think nobody knows about, but everybody does. He's taking all of those and placing them on His Son. And Jesus is being punished for them right now on the cross. He's being judged because we are rebels. He is being punished because we are not good. And so when we come to verse 34, we we see what happens on the cross. (coughs) We read Jesus' response. We see the depth of His pain. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See this cry that Jesus gives when He cries out that God has forsaken Him? What He is saying is, God, it's not that that he's been forgotten about about God. It's not that God has somehow disappeared. God is everywhere. It's that now, instead of feeling God's smile, he feels God's wrath. In In Isaiah 53, it says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Can you imagine the pain as he calls out to heaven, searching for the warmth and the smile that he had known uh, his entire life, in fact, for all eternity, and hear the, the Father's face, rather than feeling the Father's face upon him, he feels the, the Father's wrath, feels the Father's anger against our sin. Not because he had done anything, not because we have. How much does God love you? He loves you so much to send his only son. It, it says here that he gives out a loud cry and gives... And then he dies. 
The fact that he gives a loud cry shows that he chooses the moment of his death. Jesus is not, does not have his life taken from him. Jesus gives it freely. Jesus could have escaped death, but he didn't. Jesus did not escape death so that we can. Guys, this morning, Jesus allowed himself to be bound so that we can be set free. He was lifted up on the cross so that He could lift us all the way to heaven. His hands and His feet were nailed through so that we could be His hands and feet. His arms were spread wide on the cross so that He could spread His arms wide for us and embrace us with His love. Because He died. He was ransomed for us so that we could experience the forgiveness of God. God didn't simply look at our sin and say, Ah, forget it. No, someone actually paid the penalty, paid the price for our sin. Someone had to in order for God to remain God and remain just and still forgive us. Someone had to pay the price. And that someone is His own Son. How much does God love you? Jesus has made a way. He is, in fact, the hope of all the world. God loves us so much that He gave His only Son that whoever would believe in Him would have eternal life. When you get down in verse 38 of Mark 15... It says, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. You see, right here we see that Jesus truly is the hope of all who believe. This curtain would have been the obstacle between man and God, the separation between man and God, representing our sinfulness and His holiness. The curtain is saying, you cannot get to God because you're too sinful and He is too holy. And at the moment that Jesus dies, God reaches down and He rips that curtain in half and He says, not anymore. There's no more separation between us because my son has died and paid the price so that you can enter into my presence. How much does God love you? How much does He care? God loves us so much that He sent His son to remove the separation between us and Him so that we could live with Him forever. So we could spend eternity with Him, not because He messed up, but because we have. Because we have sinned. Look at verse 39. One of my favorite verses (laughs) In all the Bible. Verse 39 says, And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. You remember how we began? Remember the first group that we looked at? The group of soldiers, the group of executioners standing at the foot of the cross? These would have been the men who were tasked with making sure that if anyone stood up against Rome, they would so punish them, they would so torture them, that no one else would even think of doing such a thing. They have done things that we can't even imagine and enjoyed it. They have come to the place that they are convinced that if God is real, they have no authority over them. But who is it that first confesses that Jesus is Lord? Who is it that first confesses that Jesus is the Son of God? None other than the very man who is responsible for Jesus' death. None other than the man who is responsible for supervising his punishment, his torture, and his ultimate death. When he witnesses this act of love in this way that he died, he says, surely this man was the Son of God. Surely this man is the Son of God. The most guilty man ever at the foot of the cross is the first to receive grace. How much does God love you? I, I, well, you, you don't understand, preacher. You don't know how bad I've been. There's no way that God could love me. There's no way He could forgive someone like me. Really? Have you ever inflicted as much pain as humanly possible on God's Son and killed Him? That's what this guy was responsible for. 
And yet we read of His conversion right here before we read of anyone else's. How much does God love you? He loves you so much that He sent His Son for you to pay your price. He loves you so much. He loves you more than the, uh, any amount of sin that you could ever commit. Do you really honestly believe this morning that you are more powerful than God? Do you really honestly believe that you could do something that costs more, that takes more to pay for than the very blood of God's Son? No. It's impossible. How much does God love you? He loves you more than anything you could ever do. And He loves you so much He gave His Son for you. What else could He give? What else is there to prove His love for you? Guys, when we look at our world and we see all the nastiness and the wickedness and the just horrible things happening every day, it can all be traced back to Adam and Eve's choice to disobey God. As a result of what they did, we have cancer, we have death, we have murder, we have disease, famine, we have robberies and tornadoes and earthquakes and getting old. All of this because of sin. But on the cross, Jesus paid the penalty for our sin. And He undid all that we have done. He made all the bad stuff come untrue. He laid down His life as the payment for ours. Not only for ours, but for all of creation. He redeemed us. But He didn't stay dead. It's so important this morning to remember He did not stay dead. He is alive and He lives. And so we have hope because Jesus is not only, not only did He die for our sins, but He rose again to prove that He is who He said He is. Uh, so these women, three days after Jesus goes to the grave, they, they go and they are going to find Him and they're going to uh, you know, cover His body in, in different uh, aromas and things like that, perfume and things like that. And so we come to Mark chapter 16 and verse 4. And as they're approaching the tomb, in Mark uh, 16, 4, it says, And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large, as if to say, this was not just a, a one-man job to roll this stone back. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man alarmed, a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. They were afraid. So they enter into this tomb. And then verse 6, and he, said, and he said to them, Do not be alarmed. Don't be afraid. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Jesus says, I'm going to die, but in three days I will rise again. The people say, I thought you said you could rebuild the temple in three days. He says, I'm going to do one better. I'm going to come back from the dead. But first I have to die. You see, guys, we can trust His Word because not only did He die, He rose again. And we'll talk more about the resurrection next week and, and, and dive deeper into that. But, but for this morning, I want us to see that the cross of Jesus and His raising from the grave shows us how God responds to us in our sinfulness, in our wickedness. It shows us how much God loves us. He redeems us and pays the price for us to make all things new and right. Then He raises from the grave to prove that what He said He was going to do, He did. Way more impressive than lightning around my house. Please, Lord, hear me. <laughs> but anyway, I'm, I'm serious. I mean, I don't want Him to be shooting lightning at my house just because that's what my son wants. But, but He proves it through raising from the dead. And He offers to you this morning, guys, He offers to you eternal life. He offers to you life forever, not just then, but even now, He offers to you hope for today, uh, strength for today to face 
all the things that we face. He offers to you the power of eternal life, even now if you'll receive it. And one day, He will finally, He will return and get His people. And on that day, because Jesus died and raised again, there'll be no more cancer. There'll be no more death, no more separation, no more wicked people, no more car wrecks, or any of those things. He'll wipe away all of the tears of our eyes, and He'll give us hearts full of joy. He will make us whole, and holy is for all eternity. How much does God love you? He loves you enough to offer you heaven in spite of all you've done. And so really the final question for you this morning is this. Will you receive his forgiveness? Will you repent and believe on Jesus Christ and follow him? Not do you have everything figured out. I, I don't have everything figured out. And like I've been studying this pretty intently for uh, lots of years now. And I, I realize now I know less now than I did when I started. So I'm not asking you, do you have it all figured out? What I'm asking you, will you receive his forgiveness and will you follow him? If you've never received his forgiveness and you've never followed him, will you receive his love and his grace this morning? Will you say, Lord, I, I can't do it. I need you. I need you to save me. Not only do I, I need you to save me, I need you to forgive me. I need your strength to make it through tomorrow. Will you ask him to do that this morning? And if you have, guys, if you have received him, then are you going to invite others to hear and receive as well? This is the most important news in all of the universe. Why would we not share it? Why would we not be passionate about others following Christ and hearing this wondrous, glorious news that we have a God who loves us so much that He offers us eternal life? Will you pray with me this morning? Father, I pray that as we have a time of invitation here in a minute and as we have a time of response to You, God, I pray that we will respond to you in a way that pleases you, that honors you. God, if there's those here who don't know you, that they would leave here knowing you. And God, if there are those here who are, who are wondering and questioning you, Lord, that they would look at the cross, and that they would see your great love for them, that they would look at the cross and see that you are king and that we are not. God, I pray that you would work in this place in a mighty way. God, that you would work in our hearts in a mighty way that doesn't stop when we walk out of here, but that continues on into our lives. Lord, I pray during this time of invitation, Lord, that we would be open to you, whatever it is you're calling us to do. God, that we would respond uh, in the way that you would have us to. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would stand with us, and as you stand, we're going to have a time of invitation. And what this time is for is for you to respond to the Lord, however he would have you to respond. If you need